Welcome to The Spot Diagnosis, a podcast about all things dermatological, brought to you by the Skin Health Institute in Melbourne, Australia. I am Dr. Blake Mumford. And I'm Associate Professor Alvin Chong, Director of Education and Specialist Dermatologist. Blake and I are your co-hosts. Today, we're focusing on the other keratinocyte carcinoma, squamous cell carcinoma, also known as SCC. SCCs are the second most common skin cancer, accounting for roughly a third of skin cancers. We're also going to talk about actinic keratoses, previously solar keratoses, because these lesions are considered a precursor or precancerous lesions with the potential to progress to invasive SCC. Bowen's disease, also known as in situ SCC, and keratoacanthoma will also get a mention. Our guest for this episode is again the wonderful Dr. Michelle Goh, who joins us for a second time. Michelle is a consultant dermatologist at the Institute, where she works in the Skin Cancer Assessment and Transplant Dermatology Clinic. She is the current Victorian examiner for the Australasian College of Dermatologists and has consulting positions at several hospitals, including the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre, St. Vincent's Hospital Melbourne, the Austin, the Alfred, and finally the Royal Melbourne Hospital. Welcome, Michelle. Thank you for inviting me back, Alvin and Blake. Now, our tradition for season two is to ask our guest speaker to tell our listeners an obscure, interesting dermatological tidbit that they might not know. It's a bit unfair because we've already asked Michelle to give us a great tidbit. Alvin, I'm going to put you on the, hot, on the spot and ask you instead. That's okay, Blake. Here's one that I definitely did not prepare earlier. Our skin consists of the inner dermis and the outer epidermis. The outer layer of the epidermis is called the stratum corneum. It is actually dead. So to quote Bill Bryson, it is interesting that all that makes you lovely is deceased. We shed squamous cells from our stratum corneum at an enormous rate, about 1 million of these cells per hour, and we replenish our entire skin every 28 days. And you know household dust? That's mainly dead skin cells. Alvin, that's kind of gross. And my life has definitely not been enhanced by this knowledge. But thank you for your spontaneous dermatological tidbit. Okay, it's time for our brief overview before we get into the questions. In 1894, the German dermatologist Dr. Paul Unner discovered the link between excessive sun exposure and severe degenerative changes in the exposed areas of skin sailors. He also surmised that these degenerative changes led to skin cancer. He was right. Both actinic keratosis and SCC are the direct result of damage to the skin caused by UV radiation. Actinic keratoses are among the most frequently observed skin lesions in clinical practice. Because they are so common, cool dermatologists, like my boss and co-host Alvin, will usually refer to actinic keratoses by the acronym AK. The prevalence of actinic keratoses in patients over the age of 60 is more than 80%. AKs are caused by UV radiation and occur in areas which are exposed to the sun, the head, neck, upper trunk and the extremities. Caucasians with fair skin are at highest risk. There are several types of actinic keratoses which are characterised by their clinical appearance. Often early lesions can be as subtle as a patch of erythema with no scale, easier felt than seen. Hypertrophic actinic keratoses are at the opposite end of the spectrum. They can be difficult to distinguish from invasive SCC and tenderness on palpation is a sure sign that a biopsy should be performed to prove the difference. AKs themselves are cosmetically displeasing to most people, which is a problem in itself, 
but doctors worry about AKs because they have a very small potential to progress to invasive SCC. How common are SCCs? The short answer? Very common. Remember the statistic that in three years, 7% of the population will have had at least one keratinocyte cancer. It is estimated that one, in one year alone, there are nearly 900,000 keratinocyte cancers which are excised. SCCs number about a third of all of those, so it's roughly about 300,000 SCCs removed annually. Which brings us to another point. What is the natural history of AKs? Left alone and observed over time, they are a fairly dynamic entity. About a third will stay the same, a third will progress clinically, and a third will actually regress. Thankfully, the risk of an individual AK transforming into an SCC is extremely low, around 1 in 1,000 per year, or 1% over 10 years. Having said that, about 70% of SCCs arise from a pre-existing AK, and when they do transform, invasive SCCs are more of a problem due to the potential risk of invasion and metastasis. In Australia, about 600 patients die annually from metastatic cutaneous SCC. The ones that cause trouble tend to be high-risk lesions on the head and neck area. Invasive SCCs usually present as a growing lump on the skin, but this is not a hard and fast rule, and some lesions can look like plaques or ulcers. And that brings us to our first skin tip. Skin tip number one. Tenderness on palpation of an enlarging nodule is a good warning sign that you are dealing with an SCC. Okay, Alvin and Michelle, are you ready? Let's start with the questions, and the first topic is AKs. How often do you deal with these in clinical practice, Michelle and Alvin? So Blake, actinic keratoses are a very common problem that I deal with in the skin clinic, especially in the fair-skinned person who presents for a skin cancer check. Actually, I think it might be the most common skin problem we deal with. We have a largely Caucasian population, and uh, many Caucasians, particularly as they get older, get a lot of sun damage. So the prevalence of AKs is definitely uh, very, very high. They say that in the, those who are more than age 50, there's definitely more than 60%. What do these look like clinically? Can we go into a bit more detail about that? So they can be variable in how they present clinically. They can be scaly red lesions that can be poorly demarcated to quite well-defined lesions if they are early or mild. They can be minimally scaly. And then, but when they are more advanced, the lesion can be more hyperkeratotic, even into what we call a cutaneous horn. So say they can be, you know, solitary and, you know, lumpy, but very often they also cluster. So I see them a lot on foreheads, uh, temples, the scalp of balding men and the back of the hands. Do you know why the temples and particularly in men? Um, no, is it because they drive or? No, no, the temples because they wear baseball caps and oh. baseball caps will protect the front of your forehead and let all the light in through the side and just damage your temples. You see these all the time. When do you start to worry about them? I mean, there are a dime a dozen. What should we look for? So Blake, not all AKs need to be managed as serious concerns, but the presence of AKs, especially a large number of AKs, indicates that this person is at risk of skin cancers because of sun damage. So the diagnosis of AKs should still be made and other more serious skin cancer diagnoses should be excluded. If there is clinical uncertainty about the diagnosis, then a biopsy is advised. We worry about AKs when they grow, become thicker, painful or tender, or if they ulcerate. Okay, so do these AKs need to be treated then? 
Now, AKs are generally treated in the clinic if they are causing symptoms or if they are getting worse. As mentioned before, the risk of an individual AK transforming into an SCC is extremely low, and about 70% of SCCs are associated with an AK, so they are thought to arise from AKs. So this is a reason for treating them. I treat them if, they, if it worries the patient. So, you know, I think some patients don't care about a few AKs in those situations, I leave them. But sometimes AKs can be itchy or tender or they don't look particularly good. You know, it's hard to put makeup on, on AKs. So in those situations, I, I will treat them. Okay. Um, how do you do that? So there are many treatment options depending on the clinical severity of the AKs. They can be left alone, as we said, and monitored if they are mild and not bothersome for the patient. Sun protection is advised. However, if the AK is mildly scaling, some topical agents can be helpful, such as retinoids and keratolytic agents, such as salicylic acid or preparations containing glycolic and lactic acids. However, if the lesion is more significant, if it is an individual lesion, cryotherapy is most commonly used. If there are a large number of AKs in a field, then field treatment options are topical 5-fluorouracil, imicomod, photodynamic therapy. And sometimes I've heard that if you just do really good sun protection, some of these will actually go away. Is that right? That's true. That's true. That's a viable treatment option sometimes? It's what we call an adjunct treatment. So, you know, by rights, anyone who presents with actinic keratosis and sun damage, you're going to advise them to use sun protection. And, you know, there's a study that shows that sun protection actually results in regression of a significant number of AKs, just sun protection alone. So your body has the ability to repair itself to a degree. Right. So it's, it's something that you'd add on to, it, to other treatment options. Of course. Michelle, you mentioned cryotherapy as well. Are there some tips that you can give our listeners about how to use cryotherapy to get the best results? Perhaps Elvin is the expert in cryotherapy because he uh-huh. loves the liquid nitrogen gun. Okay, I, I all right. Try so, to avoid uh, asking Elvin because he rolled his eyes at me the first time I tried to use cryotherapy. Okay, well, um, I think you know how to do it now, but let's have a think about liquid nitrogen, all right? So do you know how cold it is? Mm, very cold, Alvin. It's very cold. It's minus 196 degrees Celsius. So it's actually uh, uh, an incredibly cold substance. And when we actually apply it to the skin, we give patients the equivalent of a thermal burn. And dermatologists usually use a cryogun, which is applied as a spray. Some doctors are still applying with a cotton bud, and that's fine. But no matter what technique you use, there's a real art to it. The intensity of the duration of the freeze really depends on the thickness of the lesion. So if you have a thick lesion, you need a longer freeze time. So you actually hold a cotton bud there for longer, or you spray it for longer. It can certainly cause blistering, Lesions may clear, but you can get an area of high pore pigmentation or even some scarring. As a rule, AKs tend to recur after initial clearance. Okay, so you know you're putting a patient through a little bit of pain. You know, it takes about a week or so to heal. It clears for a while, but over time they tend to recur. It's a little bit like trying to pull out a weed in a weed field. Be very careful performing liquid nitrogen cryotherapy to lower limbs because it may take a very long time to heal. And if you're very unlucky you can actually create a chronic ulcer. So I guess skin is, you can think of it a bit like a, as a, you know, a garden, right? You've got the, the AKs that are the weeds and, you know, is there some kind of like insecticide you can apply to this field to kind of like root out all those things in one hit, kind of like a crop duster? So I guess, Blake, you're referring to field treatment here. So compared to cryotherapy that Elvin talked about, that targets individual lesions. 
Field treatment treats an entire zone of AKs simultaneously. It is not an uncommon scenario where we find new or recurrent AKs often appearing at the edges of previously frozen AKs. So field treatment addresses the entire field of what some people term field cancerization. 5-fluorouracil cream is a topical agent we most often use because its cost is lower compared to imicomod or photodynamic therapy and 5-fluorouracil is reliable in regards to its efficacy. Clearing a field of AKs with topical treatment is advantageous in terms of ongoing surveillance for skin cancers in that more serious lesions such as invasive SCCs or BCCs or other cancers can be more readily detected clinically after clearing the AKs. Okay, so I've heard that cool dermatologists refer to 5-fluorouracil as 5-FU. So is that a bit, that's this like the weed killer, is it? The crop duster? So how do you actually use it? How's the patient apply it? Yep, so 5-FU is a topical chemotherapy cream. So it is self-applied by the patient once or twice a day to the lesion or a field um, with the target aim of achieving a moderate inflammatory reaction, which we describe as redness, scaling, itching, burning, and a superficial erosion and crusting. It takes about two to four weeks to get to this treatment endpoint. And after stopping the treatment, the local skin reaction improves over two to four weeks. It's actually quite a good treatment. If the patient can put up with the cosmetic problems whilst it is in use, they are often surprised at how clear the skin can get. You know, you go from a whole area of rough, scaly skin to fairly smooth skin, uh, almost like baby skin. Again, they will recur, okay? But it takes a lot longer to recur once you clear an area with 5-fluorouracil as opposed to cryotherapy. Often their skin is clear, sometimes for a couple of years. There was also a recent placebo-controlled, randomized-controlled trial, which demonstrated that 5-fluorouracil treatment actually resulted in a reduction of cutaneous SECs compared with the placebo group at the one-year mark. So what about Bowen's disease, or InSight USCC? Where does that fit in with things, and is it part of this whole spectrum of AK, SCC? So Blake, um, Bowen's disease, or InSight USCC, fits in the spectrum of what we describe as the histopathological continuum of keratinocyte dysplasia. So AKs are the first. They, they are characterized by intraepidermal dysplasia and can vary in severity from mild to severe. Bowen's disease, or in situ SCC, lies somewhere in between an AK and invasive SCC. The histology of Bowen's is full-thickness intraepidermal dysplasia, short of invasive SCC. It's not invasive yet, but it's on its way. So it is definitely more dysplastic, and there's a higher transformation rate into invasive SCCs. The estimated rate is about 5 to 10% per year. I usually treat these because they're often symptomatic. They can be itchy, painful and tender, and they're also quite common on the limbs of elderly women. So they can be a very, very difficult thing to treat. All right, so kind of like what we were talking about before, we don't want to do cryotherapy, you know, in a profligate manner that will cause an ulcer in the lower limbs. Okay, so how do you treat it then? What are the options? So it really depends on the site um, and size. So the options are cryotherapy, if you know how to use it, 5-fluorouracil again, topical mucumod, surgical excision. On the head and neck area, where they can go down follicles and recur, and if they become invasive, it can be very tricky, I tend to want to excise them. On difficult areas such as the lower limbs, my favorite treatment would most likely be 5-fluorouracil, 
applied twice daily for three to four weeks. It causes a fair bit of inflammation, but it tends to clear these lesions quite well. They will recur though. Right. Well, look, guys, uh, you've just pointed out to everyone that both AKs and Bowens are diseases which cause scaly red patches or plaques. I mean, there's many other skin problems that present in this way as well. Things like tinea, eczema, and psoriasis. Is everything just a red scaly plaque? Are there any clues that can help us pick or differentiate between these? So, Blake, a complete history and full skin examination is the key to differentiating between AKs, Bowenoid AKs, or Bowens, versus inflammatory skin lesions. Dysplastic or neoplastic lesions usually do not come and go or move around, unlike inflammatory lesions. In general, inflammatory skin lesions are more numerous and can be a little more itchy. And then on full skin examination, the AKs and Bowens are often localized to sun damaged sites, whereas we can find clues for inflammatory skin disease at the common sites of their preponderance, such as the limb flexures for eczema, limb extensors or scalp for psoriasis, the feet or inguinal region for tinea. It sounds like that usual textbook refrain, Michelle. History and examination is everything. Oh, that's usual. right. So, what do SCCs look like? What are the warning signs that you are dealing with an SCC? Unlike AKs and Bowenoid lesions, SCC often present as tender keratotic papules or nodules that have induration or thickness on palpation. Warning features that it is an SCC rather than an in situ lesion is the pain, thickness, and the history also of rapid growth. And SCCs, they're dangerous, right? Yes, SCCs can be dangerous if left untreated or if they are aggressive types of SCC. SCCs can potentially also become life-threatening as they can invade deep into critical structures, they can spread to regional nodes or even spread hematogenously to distant sites such as the lung. We mustn't forget that every year about five to 600 people will die from metastatic cutaneous SCC. Right, okay. And how are these SCCs to be treated then? So surgical excision is the treatment of choice. Radiation therapy can be used for primary cutaneous SCCs as well when surgery is contraindicated for various reasons. And what sort of high-risk features are there of SCC? We talked about in the last episode on BCC, there's certain high-risk features. Same thing apply for SCC? Yeah. So high-risk SCCs are those that have high risk for local recurrence or regional recurrence or even distant metastases, as we've talked about. So they include SCCs that are very large in diameter, thick or deep, recurrent tumours or tumours occurring in scars or chronic wounds. And high-risk sites include the ears and the lips. And SCCs in occurring in immune-suppressed patients have a poorer prognosis as well. Histologically, high-risk SCCs are those that have perineural invasion or lymphovascular invasion or that are poorly differentiated. High-risk SCCs, do they need to be treated or managed differently from the usual SCC? Yes, so compared to the more common well-differentiated SCC that is slower growing, high-risk SCCs should be treated aggressively with minimal delay. So that is surgical excision to achieve margins that are well clear and then also consideration for adjuvant post-operative radiotherapy if that is indicated and then also followed up with post-treatment close surveillance for any recurrence. Usually, I think that these high-risk SCCs are best managed by specialists or multidisciplinary teams, um, such as uh, the ones at Peter Mac. All right, guys, it's time for another skin tip. We've gotten deep enough into the podcast. So high-risk SCCs 
have a higher risk for loco-regional recurrence and metastatic disease. These SCCs may require adjuvant treatment and are best managed by specialists or MDTs. Alvin, you run the transplant surveillance clinic at the Skin Health Institute. Can you tell us a bit about how immunosuppression affects SCC and what sort of patients do you typically see in your clinic? So as you know, the immune system is pretty important. So apart from killing germs and things, it also kills cancer cells. When you actually immunosuppress someone, you increase the risk of certain cancers. And we know that uh, in patients who've had solid organ transplants, the risk of cutaneous SEC increases by about 65 to 100 fold compared with the general population. Patients with CLL uh, also have an increased uh, risk of SCC because of the impaired cell immunity. When you see these patients, they can get multiple SCCs. Sometimes they can be very dangerous and they can occur extremely quickly. Occasionally they can almost grow like carrots, like every three to four months they're growing another squame. So we set up the transplant dermatology clinic at Skin Health Institute to help us manage these patients. We use a combination of rapid triaging to remove the cancers, a lot of topical 5-fluorouracil. We use oral acetretin, which is a retinoid, and we liaise a lot with the transplant physicians to see if the patient's immunosuppression can be altered or lowered. All right, we're doing the skin tips in rapid succession now. This is skin tip number three. Immunosuppressed patients are at much higher risk of SCC and other skin cancers and should have at minimum annual surveillance. Can you, perhaps Michelle or Alvin, give us an example of one of the more unusual cases of SCC where you were a bit caught off guard? So I'll go first. I remember a heart transplant patient who had a plaque on her forearm which clinically and biopsy was proven to be an in-situ SCC. However, she was still on the waiting list for surgery two months later and by then, the lesion had transformed and progressed into a larger and deeper ulcerated plaque. On excision of the actual lesion, finally, it proved to be a poorly differentiated SCC. And then unfortunately, two months later, she then presented with dermal in-transit metastases along the limb and then also with axillary nodal metastasis. And the following month, she had lung metastases, and unfortunately, she did succumb to the disease very quickly within four months. That's actually quite similar to my, my um, experience as well with transplant patients. So, you know, I looked after a 50-year-old uh, woman with a lung transplant who developed a lesion which initially looked like a small pea, and then within two weeks had grown to the size of a ping-pong ball on her forehead. And despite you know, urgent surgical excision, she developed metastatic disease into a parotid lymph node, had very disfiguring surgery, and subsequently still died from the metastatic disease. So it was heartbreaking, and these transplant patients can actually do very badly. Both of those stories are very shocking and, and sobering. I think both cases show just how deadly SCC can be, and so rapidly too. Um, yes, we cannot underestimate that SECs can be extremely aggressive mm. in certain cases. Uh, and so I think, Alvin, this highlights the importance of regular skin surveillance, such as that at your clinic, particularly for immunosuppressed patients. Uh, Michelle, your first example also highlights what we mentioned earlier about the potential for SCC to present as an ulcer and not just as like a tender nodule, I guess. So thank you both for sharing those stories. Uh, I think that brings us now to our fourth skin tip. SCC is dangerous and can progress rapidly. Excision should be undertaken promptly to avoid potentially lethal metastases. Okay, 
Now we're going to talk a bit about keratoacanthoma. Michelle, what do you think about keratoacanthomas or KAs? So KAs are SCC-related lesions in a way. Whether they are a form of cutaneous SCC or a se separate kind of entity still remains debatable. Keratoacanthoma is characterized by its unique clinical course in that it starts as a papule that grows extremely rapidly to form the classic appearance of a red dome-shaped nodule with a large keratotic plug in the central crater. After a four to eight week period of rapid growth, the lesion stabilizes for a period and later spontaneously regresses over two to three months to leave a scar. The histopathology has features that can support the diagnosis of a KA, but histology also cannot definitively differentiate from a, a KA from a well-differentiated SCC. So lesions that present like a KA may not always resolve as well and therefore are likely to be underlying SCCs. In clinical practice, any rapidly growing tumour should be managed by early surgical excision rather than relying on the clinical diagnosis of KA and waiting for its spontaneous resolution because the differential diagnosis for a rapidly growing tumour apart from a rapidly growing aggressive SCC includes other aggressive skin cancers such as melanonic melanomas Merkel cell carcinoma or cutaneous metastases as well. Correct. The only way you can confidently diagnose a keratoacanthoma clinically is when it falls off. I guess that brings us to another skin tip. A rapidly growing skin tumour is malignant until proven otherwise. The treatment of a suspected keratoacanthoma is surgical excision. Okay, so we try and pick up these SCCs as soon as possible so that we can excise them and achieve cure. But what are some of the newer treatments now for SCCs for disease that might be a bit more advanced or is already metastatic? So Blake, I have mentioned radiation therapy. This is used in the setting of post-operative adjuvant treatment or for treatment of locally advanced or metastatic disease. Immunotherapy is also available. It is in the form of PD-1 inhibition that is programmed cell death protein number one and it holds the greatest promise, like in advanced melanoma. Trials have shown the, the efficacy of PD-1 inhibitors in unresectable, locally advanced or metastatic SCC. Semiplimab is the PD-1 blocker currently available in the trial setting for advanced SCC in Australia, and nivolumab or pembrolizumab are also available through self-funding or compassionate access. There is also targeted therapy in the form of epidermal growth factor receptor inhibitors, such as cetuximab, and that is approved by the Australian Pharmaceutical Benefits Scheme for its use on metastatic mucosal SCC of the head and neck and used in combination with radiotherapy. Traditional cytotoxic chemotherapy is also available, and this is used in combination with radiation therapy, although chemotherapy is generally poorly tolerated and rarely leads to sustained remission of advanced SCC. So I guess that brings us to our final question now. Is obviously prevention is better than cure. Is there anything we can do to stop SCCs from occurring? So Blake, the most important thing is sun protection with clothing and hats, use of high SPF sunscreen and sun avoidance. Nicotinamide, which is the amide form of vitamin B3, has been shown to enhance DNA repair following UV irradiation and can block UV-associated immune suppression. In, in the clinical setting, Nicotinamide has been shown in small trials to reduce the number of new SCCs, BCCs and AKs by about 20%, but the jury is still out as to the statistical analyses of these results. 
and whether these positive conclusions of nicotinamide's efficacy will be reproducible. The benefit of systemic retinoids in the form of acetretin has been shown in trials to reduce the number of SECs in the organ transplant cohort. Well, I think if nicotinamide does prove to be effective at preventing uh, skin cancers, I think that's remarkable because it's a fairly cheap treatment that you know I wouldn't have thought had too many side effects. Is that right? Sort of like an oral form of sunscreen, isn't it? Yeah, wow. Okay, and Alvin, any other, any other advice? Well, I think um, uh, Australia leads the way in skin cancer prevention. You know, the SunSmart program has been going for more than 25 years, and it has been absolutely brilliant in highlighting sun-protective behavior in young people. Uh, we really are at the forefront of um, sun protection public health programs worldwide. So, Michelle... Thank you so much for giving up your time and sharing with us your expertise. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. I just want to highlight a great resource for clinicians put together by Australian Cancer Council's Clinical Guidelines Network on keratinocyte cancers. It is available online in an easy-to-use format, cancer.org.au slash Australia slash guidelines colon keratinocyte underscore carcinoma. You can find a link to this in the podcast description and on our website at spotdiagnosis.org.au. Okay, that concludes our episode on SCC. Thanks again, Dr. Michelle Goh, for joining us today. We would like to thank Joe Coglin and Peter Monaghan at the Skin Health Institute. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Spot Diagnosis. Remember, these podcasts are not meant to replace medical advice. If you have a skin condition that requires attention, we strongly encourage you to see your medical practitioner. For listeners who want more information on this subject, a transcript of this episode and links to other resources can be found on our website, spotdiagnosis.org.au. Also, the Skin Health Institute, based in Carlton, Melbourne, hosts a series of GP education events. Our workshops cover a variety of important dermatological skills and topics, including demoscopy, as well as hands-on workshops for GPs and GP trainees using pigskin, where we demonstrate biopsy and surgical excision techniques. These are run by Professor Alvin Chong and a team of specialist dermatologist educators. Please share spot diagnosis with your friends and colleagues. Rate and review us. Let us know what you think. We would really appreciate your feedback and any suggestions. Thank you once again for listening.